Hi, I'm Dr. Gillian O'Shea-Brown. I am a complex trauma therapist, author of the book Healing Complex PTSD, and adjunct professor of trauma at NYU. We're about to have a conversation about what is unique and different from complex trauma versus single incident trauma. We're going to look at the pain that occurs in the context of relationships, in addition to talking about some coping strategies and tips for feeling safe in your relationships and in the workplace. I hope you enjoy. You're listening to Rick with a shout out from London Town, it's Rick Flynn presents. And now, ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn. Hi, everyone. Welcome on into our program today. Dr. Jalene O'Shea Brown is our guest coming from where the action is. And we all know live from New York City, that's where our guest is. Dr. Brown is a psychotherapist. She is a complex trauma specialist. She is an adjunct professor at New York University. And she is, of course, the author of her book, which is called Healing Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. And that is abbreviated as PTSD. Her book, once again, Healing Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. You have seen Dr. Brown featured in Vogue magazine, Marie Claire magazine, The Huffington Post, Wondermind, among others. She has her own website, Jolene O'Shea Brown, psychotherapy.com. Dr. Brown, thank you for clearing your schedule, for coming on our program from New York City, and it's a pleasure to have you. Come right on in. Wow, what what an amazing introduction. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. I uh, really appreciate the important work that you're doing, Shine a light for people with your podcast. So it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Brown. I am not in any way, shape, or form an expert at what you do. You're never going to believe this, Dr. Brown. I'm not licensed to practice medicine in any of the 50 states. Do you believe that? Well, you know, I feel like healers come in a lot of forms and sometimes spreading awareness and spreading the word and giving people permission to take care of themselves can be just as impactful as directly being on the front lines. Okay. So so don't minimize what you're doing. I'll tell you what, doctor, I love to communicate. I'm pretty good at that. But what I would like to know, first of all, Dr. Brown, what is the difference, if you will, between a psychotherapist and a psychiatrist or a psychologist? Okay, so a psychiatrist um, can give you basically prescriptions for uh, psychopharmacology and medication management. A psychologist can do psychotherapy and they can also do the screenings for specific learning difficulties, autism and other personality testing. Whereas psychotherapy, you are doing basically talk therapy, trauma resolution, psychoanalysis 
and just classic therapy without the medication management. That's kind of the three layers of um, mental health professionals. And and then on top of all of that, you have nurse practitioners you, and, you know, a whole host of helping professionals that are also in that multidisciplinary team. Now, a psychotherapist, therefore, does not write scripts. It is not your MO, so to speak, to heal a patient with drugs, right? Yeah, you're, you're diagnosing and treating with therapy, but not with medication. Do you deal with autism? No, that's not a speciality of mine. Oh, okay. Would that be a different doctor that handles that? And what type of doctor would that be? Well, you could get a psychotherapist, a psychologist, or a psychiatrist where their area of speciality is autistic spectrum disorder. Okay. So you're a psychotherapist, but you're not a specialty in autism. That would require a psychotherapist that is a specialty that has trained in autistic patients. Correct. Yeah. Everyone has their own speciality and their own specific population. And the population that I work with are those that are survivors of complex PTSD, which is relational trauma. And my trainings or the modalities that I use are all centered around that specific diagnosis. I understand now. Unfortunately, I grew up, as a lot of us did, especially when you're a little older, we remember the wartime era. I remember the Vietnam conflict, and there are others, uh, my parents' age and so forth, that would remember World War II, the Korean conflict, and all this and that. I, I bring it all up, Dr. Brown, because isn't it true that a lot of the PTSD that you are finding is when we send our brave men and women off to war and they come home after their service is done and they discover that they have PTSD. Am I right? Well, it's interesting what you're saying because you're asking about PTSD, which is a different diagnosis to complex PTSD. PTSD was introduced into the Diagnostic Statistical Manual back in 1980. And prior to that time, soldiers were coming home with a mysterious diagnosis at the time they were calling it shell shock and they couldn't really understand it. They knew that they had a sense of hypervigilance, that there was emotional reactivity, there, there was mood swings, disassociation where they felt disconnected from their body and a propensity towards uh, ritualistic compulsive self-soothing um, often with substances or other behaviours. And back in 1980, the diagnosis PTSD was first given you know, as a way of understanding, treating and healing soldiers. And then after 1980, about 12 years later, an American psychiatrist by the name of Judith Herman kind of said, well, what about the people who are don't just have trauma through war or a one-time event? What about the people that have experienced trauma through relationships, the death by a thousand cuts, whether that's intimate partner violence, childhood trauma, and other kind of relational trauma. And then in 1992, Bessel van der Kolk, Herman, and many others, they petitioned for 30 years to have PTSD changed, to have an additional diagnosis included, to distinguish between single incident trauma from layered complex relational trauma. And last year, the new diagnosis of complex PTSD was introduced, not to the DSM, but to the IC International Classifications of Diseases Manual. So it's a very distinct and different to PTSD. And that's not to say that many of the soldiers don't have a history of childhood trauma. 
or perhaps that's why they went to the military in the first place, to escape a family situation, find security, try to feel safe in the world. And it gets aggravated by what they're exposed to. But what you're discussing are two very different diagnoses. Okay, complex trauma specialist, which is what you are. The trauma, that can be living, for example, in an unstable home, or are you referring to one traumatic incident that they experienced in life that may be unrelated to their family? Uh, Can you describe what the trauma is that would cause somebody to suffer? Okay, so complex trauma is, is layered trauma. And and what you have in the very beginning is a sense of not feeling safe or not feeling secure, not feeling a belonging and negative core beliefs that develop within a person. And it is very much layered in nuance. It often feels like a debt by a thousand cuts because growing up in an environment that's abusive or an environment of course of control, emotional instability, uh, pervasive toxic stress. Uh, this shapes the personality and it creates um, difficulties with feeling safe, at trusting others, feeling regulated in your body. It can create uh, relationships with substances in order to numb out. So it, it's very much in the context, the trauma that occurs in the context of relationships that makes a person feel unsafe in the world. And that could be a variety variety of different things, including the occupation that one engages in, right? Well, usually it's the bite that fits the wound in that the early formative years when your emotional map is forming, early insecurities are formed, and then later life events can actually bring up those symptoms. I've had people in the past where they've had a lot of childhood adversity, but they were able to kind of push through. And then with a lot of toxic stress in the workplace, everything comes to the surface and they end up having a lot of somatization, panic attacks, um, brain fog, disassociation. So it, it can absolutely be activated or aggravated later on by other life events, but it always begins in childhood. Oh, it always begins. Even before, obviously in childhood, the child has not begun to work for a living. But I heard you once talk about corporate wellness. So I thought maybe the trauma would have occurred only when the individual received that corporate position or job. And you're saying no. It always begins in childhood. Well, if you think about it in childhood, childhood is where you learn who you are in the world. You learn how to collaborate. You learn how to ask for help, to make mistakes, to communicate. And those that grew up in a very adverse childhood, they can have loyalty binds, communication deviance, polarizing mood swings, a lot of challenges. And the corporate wellness experiences that I host, they teach people the skills to have it to create a trauma-informed workplace where there is more of a sense of safety where you can co-create processes compassionately witness diffuse feelings of hypervigilance because ultimately you can only have lateral thinking and creativity when you feel safe and fostering safe workplaces 
is, is incredibly important. And in any workplace, at any given time, there are several, you know, individuals that are actively living with trauma-related symptoms. And this can impact how they collaborate, how they work together, how they communicate. And being able to understand that through a compassionate lens and find a way of working together harmoniously, it enhances the overall productivity of the work environment. So it's something I'm very passionate about because a lot of people spend more time in their offices than they do at home and safety in the work environment is very important. And safety not only means the OSHA regulations to keep destructive, making sure everything is safe uh, physically at work with the equipment and so forth that they use, especially if it's a manufacturing or warehousing type facility. But you're saying safety at the office also includes how, for example, your boss or a supervisor would treat you. Is that included in safety? Yeah, um, I guess what you're you're not just looking at environmental safety, you're looking at the relationships, the psychological safety in a workplace. A lot of people that do end up going on short-term disability, there's a pervasive feeling of hypervigilance, um, not feeling safe, feeling on edge, walking on eggshells. This is something that really stifles productivity on an individual and organizational level because if you have relational trauma in the workplace, your lateral thinking, your creativity, your productivity is shut off and toxic work culture is the number one reason for loss of talent in the workplace. A lot of work environments where there is a climate of trepidation and toxic stress and coercion, people vote with their feet. They they resign and the issues never get resolved because if you feel unsafe and unsupported in a corporate system, you're not going to feel productive. You're not going to feel psychological um, wellness. And what I try to do is help workplaces cultivate a sense of emotional preparedness so that they can create a trauma-informed workplace. This means that you get to maintain talent in the workplace. You get to foster resiliency, courage and strength. And you don't lose people who vote with their feet because you're able to create happy, fulfilled team members and their needs are solidly met. And the, the tension and the hypervigilance that can hamper, you know, people's full potential, that's something that I want to uh, unburden from employers and employees. Yeah, very well. Now, have you ever had a situation where the corporation has lost the talent? The talent has resigned. So I cannot stand this anymore. My life is not being, it's not worth it for me to come into this job and be verbally and mentally abused by A, B, or C party who works here. And have you ever had a situation where after the talent resigns, where the corporation or the corporate management, the head of it, for example, would come to you and say, Dr. Brown, and you can't go into patient-doctor privilege type of a thing, but do they ever come and say, what should we do about having an abusive boss here at this workplace? We're losing good people because of it, or doesn't the 
corporation even care? Well, you know, you're right in what you're saying. Most corporations are reactive rather than proactive. And they bring someone in after they've lost a lot of talent, after there's been workplace grievances, after it's been kind of exposed that there's a toxic workplace and relationships and hierarchical systems. And they're often coming in in the midst of a crisis saying, "Okay, we need to work through this. So it's often not a proactive thing. It's a reactive thing. And, you know, every business cares when you're losing good people and you're losing good talent because you can't keep bringing in new people and retraining them. It's not sustainable. And for a lot of places, you know, trauma leaves behind clues. And the clue is, is that people don't stay up around for long. And um, people are very stressed. People don't come to voice. There's like an echo chamber because they're they're afraid to um, share their thoughts, give constructive feedback. And then there are some managers where the people under them, you know, they, they won't stay. You know, they burn out, they physically burn out or they leave. And, you know, when I'm working with companies, what I'm trying to do is create compassionate leaders that prioritize purpose, meaning and growth. And this will cultivate happy, fulfilled team members so that they can fulfill their full potential. And the tension and the hypervigilance that's created through communication or power structures, it can be very rigid and it can really arrest the development, the creativity, the playfulness, the ability to connect in a meaningful way. And those feeling states, that's what makes someone want to work in a company long term. That's what makes a person person bring their best self to the table to come up with the best ideas to put their heart in their work and you just don't get the best out of someone when they're chronically fearful or they're planning their exit strategy so a trauma-informed workplace it has a balance of wellness habits but it also has strength in understanding of how trauma impacts relationships with ourselves and with others and people respond very very well to psychoeducation and to iron out communication deviance and sometimes it's just a case that people you know, with awareness and with the right tools and knowing what's in it for them and how it can benefit the overall business, people are often very, very willing to to learn and to go outside of their comfort zone. So I, I do think corporations care. I just feel that they often come from a place of reaction rather than proactively getting to the root of the issue. They're often responding after the crisis has already occurred. Right. And it could take the corporation a long time, not a short minute. It'll take them sometimes years before they get the situation solved at hand. Would that be accurate? Um, I think that's been accurate in the past, but I, I see a huge cultural change happening in the work environment. Um, MIT Sloan actually did a recent study on toxic workplace culture um, being the number one reason for loss of talent in the workplace. And it's been spoken about a lot more, you know, the, with the great resignation that occurred after the pandemic. Um, people were very aware of, you know, this feeling of being disconnected, unsafe, unsupported in an unhealthy corporate ecosystem system. And I think that it's changing. I think more and more companies are really prioritizing corporate wellness and shared values and creating an environment where people want to stay and people feel happy and purposeful. And I think that that is, it no longer, you know, takes years of this is the way it's always been done. I think that that whole climate has been changing so much over the last few years and it's really wonderful to see. Do you think that when you have that evil 
lurking, if I could refer to it as that, in the corporate structure. You have somebody who is, you might say, traumatizing the employees to the point of the employee wanting to leave and eventually leaving. Do you believe the traumatizer, the person committing that, often their boss or their superior at that job? Do you think that that individual actually is in some manner mentally uh, suffering with some sort of a disease? Or how would you describe what the... uh, It would seem to me that there is a dysfunction taking place when a person lives their life every day to basically ruin the lives of good talent and others. Well, okay, so you brought up a few interesting points there. Um, The first one, you know, I don't actually see people as being good or evil. I think that every person is a complicated mix of vices and virtues. And a lot of the vices are defense mechanisms. And to quote Freud, we repeat rather than remember. So a lot of these people that are antagonizing others or making them feel safe, they're in need of psychoeducation and techniques to expand their skills. And if you separate a person from their behaviors, and then you look at their behaviors, behind every behavior is a feeling and behind every feeling is a need. And when you get to the heart of the rationale and what they're trying to do, then you can present strategies that are more intentional and more harmonious in a persuasive way. So in terms of people that are hurting others in the workplace, you have to look at the behavioral patterns, the intention behind the behavioral patterns. Is it a a lack of information? Is it a lack of education? Is it that they are repeating this kind of corporate or systematic oppression and discrimination that they've lived through and the the victim is becoming the oppressor? Um, You have to look at each person in the context of their own environment. And, you know, curiosity and compassion gets you a long way when it comes to restructuring the internal dialogue of individuals. Okay. Two sets of parents, mother and father. One raises a child which is able to go into the job with an, if I could use the term, an abusive supervisor of whatever that party does verbally or otherwise. And they're able to not withstand. It. They have, they're the talent that resigns, that leaves, that say, I cannot handle this. I'm out of here. And they go. But then another set of parents raises a child that goes work to work for a company like that and speaks with the boss, perhaps in a private meeting and said, look, we can do better than this. We don't have to have this feeling of conflict, you and I, and you and the other people who are complaining. Let's get get together. Let's see if we can have meetings and fix this. And so one can actually thrive in the corporation. One cannot. They have to leave. What is the difference? Is it being raised as a child with confidence, education, etc.? Or is that totally different. Why do you think the one child who grows up and enters the corporate world thrives while the other cannot take it? Well, first off, whenever you're presented with a toxic work environment, it's important to ask yourself, do I change myself or do I change my environment? A person that decides to leave, it's not that they're not thriving. It's not that they're not courageous. That's actually a very assertive thing to do because every time you put your hand in the fire, you get burnt. Is it a good idea to step back? Absolutely. 
Now, what uh, differentiates that person from the person that comes to voice and blows the whistle? What you're asking about is what makes some people courageous enough to be the whistleblower? And that's actually much more rare because people are very afraid to blow the whistle for a number of reasons. They're afraid that there will be some kind of backlash. They're afraid that there will be loyalty binds. It might impact their progression in their career, or they're concerned that they'll be punished in some way. So it's not that every person that has confidence and emotional intelligence and the ability to lean into discomfort will blow the whistle. Blowing the whistle is actually rare and whistleblowers should be treasured. Now, cultivating an environment where someone feels comfortable blowing the whistle, that's what corporations can work towards. And that's challenging because trust is built gradually over time to small, consistent acts and inviting the feedback and receiving it respectfully and then adapting to their needs. That's how you get employees more comfortable blowing the whistle than voting with their feet. I see. Okay. If the corporation looks at the whistleblowing as an an advantage, if you will, that will absolutely help the patient who is going through the bad times, if I could reword it in simple terms. Is that right? Yeah, I think any any corporation that is reflexive, that has adaptive leadership for change, that listens to the needs of their employees and makes you feel safe and heard and that your voice matters, that your experience matters, they're ultimately going to retain good talent and people are going to continue to thrive and feel safe there. And it is, it's going to be good for the employer It's going to be good for the employee. And ultimately, the benefactors, they'll feel that the sense of safety and the lateral thinking and creativity from that organization is kind of flowing in all areas. So how do companies cultivate this sense of safety? It begins with forming stable, predictable, reliable processes where feedback is welcome and it's heard. And then changes are are made and there is a bottom-up approach of allowing people to feel safe enough to come to voice. That's very important and it would create more of a sense of psychological safety and emotional preparedness when there is a person that is an antagonist or there has been relational trauma. Things can get resolved quicker in a more harmonious way because secrecy, silence and shame, you know, whether that's perpetuating a family system or an organization, that's where you know, trauma really grows and facilitating safe and comfortable spaces and conversations. That's the elixir to the wound. So that's the angle that, you know, business owners need to go down is how do we create more safety? How do we create an environment where you can come to voice? And if there is a whistleblower, how do we make them feel more comfortable and more heard? An antagonist. That was an excellent term that you used. When a corporation realizes, Dr that there is a, quote, antagonist on the staff that is making other workers uncomfortable. Is it not incumbent upon the company to get to that antagonist and say, listen, you're costing us our people. You're bringing us complaints. This is unwarranted. This is not right. And if it does not stop, you're not going to be here employed very long. Am I right about this? I think there are too many antagonists allowed to proceed and that there's something 
sick, quote unquote, about somebody who just enjoys life ruining or making very, very um, difficult for other workers to live. Uh, I I don't find that normal, quote unquote, uh, or can you lead me in the right path? What do you think about the antagonist? Well, I feel that when, when somebody blows the whistle and you become aware of the antagonist in the work environment, first it's important to get the key context from both sides and to try to discern, is this a pattern of behavior? And then, you know, as I said before, behind every behavior is a feeling and behind every feeling is a need. So what was the intention? Um, Really trying to understand, you know, if we were using Provaska and de Clementine stages of change model, which is often used forensically to determine if there's a risk of reoffending, you're looking to see if a person is fully accountable for where they went wrong, if they can own it rather than, you know, blaming the victim. If they have the ability to empathize, to put themselves in the other person's shoes and understand the magnitude of what they're doing. And then there's the acknowledgement for the need for change and how they're going to maintain that change. And I feel that if a person is coachable in that way and they're flexible in that way and willing to engage and own and empathize, then change can occur in an effective way. So it's really person to person and it's very contextual and unique in that regard. Isn't this just like alcoholism? If you want to change, you can change. If you don't want to, you're not going to change at all. You're going to remain stagnant. I think a lot of maladaptive behaviors in a person's life, you know, self-determination and the clinical alliance, whether that's the person that you're working with, for wellness or your therapist or someone else, you know, they go a long way. So yes, if somebody's not ready to make changes or not ready to be accountable or not open to empathizing with the person, people that they've hurt, no real meaningful change will occur. Here's what you say, doctor, quote, I help clients realize not only their goals, but their potential to live life more fully. Clients are encouraged to gain a better understanding of their subconscious drives and motives. How does the subconscious enter in with all of this? So, you know, your your unconscious, your subconscious mind, below conscious awareness, everybody has um, a particular emotional map of the world. And when we repeat things over and over again, um, they become implicit procedural memory. Whether that's getting out of bed and which leg will you put in your pants or which hand do you use to brush your teeth. A lot of these things you don't consciously think about. They happen below conscious awareness. And we repeat rather than remember. We're often reliving the same loop of behaviors, reactions, thoughts, without questioning them, without uh, examining them, without engaging in self-study. And when some of those choices and behavioral patterns are maladaptive, as in they are hurtful to ourselves or others, this is often the invitation that people need to go within and engage in some compassionate witnessing and self-study. And often when you do that, you get to the very root of where a person learned to move through the world in this way. Often when a person understands the rooting behind their communication deviance or their antagonistic behavior or their relationship with substances, 
and they see it as a defense mechanism or a numbing device beneath a deeper wound. They're able to understand because my work with my personal clients, my clients in individual therapy is around trauma resolution, you know, with EMDR and somatic experiencing. What often happens is they will process these key touchstone memories and, you know, change the meaning of them, the intensity of the emotional reactivity and the defense mechanisms and the numbing around it dissolves and they can begin to be more intentional in terms of planning a life and behavior and choices that are congruent with their future template. Now, what does mom and dad need to know to raise a child that is going to grow up and not suffer from PTSD? Well, there, there are three things that really set a child up for success in life. And um, the first one is that the child, as much as possible, that there is a stable, predictable, reliable environment where the child learns that if they ask for help or if they come to voice, they'll be heard and they can ask her what they need and still feel lovable. The the other thing that really sets a child up for success early in life is, um, and this was Walter Michel's research in Colombia, the marshmallow test, is mastering the art of delayed gratification. If I do this now, I can have this later. Instilling that in a child will really help them in terms of working towards goals and navigating friction and difficult challenges and building confidence in themselves. And then the third thing that a child really needs to know is to play nicely. And this is often role modeling from the parents, teaching them respectful communication, how to rupture and repair, how to forgive, how to choose with discernment who is, you know, who is a good friend or companion and and who's not a safe person. And I feel like just to put it very simply, just those three things. They can set a person up for success throughout the trajectory of their life. Absolutely. Now, doctor, we've all heard of the soldiers, to use our prior analogy, where they wake up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden they've, they're screaming and yelling and they're thinking during a dream that they're back on the war field. And when they scream loud enough, it wakes them up and wait a minute, I'm not at war. I'm back at home now. That is a malady, which is PTSD associated, I'm sure. But you don't need wartime for that type of a thing. If somebody is experiencing PTSD in their life, for example, at work or at home, do they often wake up from a dream busting out like that? Or is that totally different? So you're you're asking about um, PTSD and complex PTSD and how they're the same and how they're different. Yes. So the symptoms of PTSD, um, it's an exposure to a single incident threat. And there's often loss of memory of aspects of the trauma you know, a fogginess, a hypervigilance, and this can be a startle response or it could be nighttime terrors, as you just explained, an avoidance of triggers that are reminiscent of the experience and re-experiencing, which could be flashbacks, intrusive thoughts, or it also, you know, could be the sleep disturbance. Now, how is this different and unique to complex PTSD? Complex PTSD is when you're exposed to chronic prolonged threat 
and instability. It's usually in the context of relationships. There's the same loss of memory, you know, with large gaps. Uh, trauma survivors usually don't have memories, they fragments. And you still have the hypervigilance, avoidance and re-experiencing. So as you mentioned, you know, the, the sleep terrors, the intrusive thoughts, the flashbacks, they can still be there. You know, trauma leaves behind clues and it can come to the surface and intrude upon your present in different ways. The body is often more dysregulated with the relational trauma because it was over a long period of time. And if you're walking on eggshells and feeling on edge over a number of months or years, over time, the body disconnects, it disassociates. The The other thing that is unique with complex PTSD is that relationships are difficult and there are a lot of negative self-beliefs a lot of negative I am beliefs. I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. I'm not in control. I'm powerless. And this somatic distress and the body issues, they can create a lot of uh, difficulty with feeling grounded and feeling present. So there's a bit of a Venn diagram where they are both the same and different. And the additional symptoms of the relationship difficulties and the somatic distress, the disassociation and the negative self-concept and uh, relationship challenges, this is what makes complex PTSD unique from PTSD. So the symptom presentation of the nighttime terrors or intrusive thoughts or flashbacks, they could be present in either one. Oh, in either either one of the two, PTSD or complex PTSD, either one. Yes, that's correct. Now, how about just plain old self-confidence? Is one child going to be raised with plenty of self-confidence and the other child could be raised with very little? It would seem to me the child without the self-confidence is really going to be more of a candidate for this, or am I wrong? Well, when somebody, when it, when a person comes to therapy and they have um, poor self-esteem, there's usually a set of I am beliefs that underpin the poor self-esteem. It's important when you meet a client, it's kind of like you're reading a book or watching a movie and the main characters revealing themselves to you in their own words. And a person that has, you know, low self-esteem or poor confidence, they might be saying things like, like I'm not worthy of love, I'm unlovable, I'm stupid, I'm not good enough, I'm powerless, I'm insignificant, I'm not safe, I deserve to be miserable, I'll always be alone. And underneath one of those negative core beliefs, there's always a string of memories because you're not born believing these things about yourself, you learn them over time. And those key specific incidents, they let you know exactly at what points a person learned this. And often the bite that fits the wound, this gets re activated, you know, over and over again. And this can be very traumatic for a person because, you know, you have to remember no child is born believing they're unworthy of love, respect or comfort. And core negative beliefs are learned through painful life experiences and then reinforced over time. And this is why you can have latent or hidden negative beliefs that get really exacerbated by a particular toxic relationship or workplace. But it's usually floating back to an earlier time because those early formative years when the personality is forming and you're creating your emotional map, they're pivotal. And um, the beliefs, you know, over time, they, they really shape your behaviors and how you view the world and how, how resilient and adaptive you feel 
in the face of trauma or in the face of adverse events. Well, I have been referred to many times as a communicator, which I take as a compliment. I've been successful at it, I believe, my whole life. Thank God. At least I've been able to put bread and butter on the table because of it. But I've heard you mention communication deviance. What is that and how does that apply to PTSD? So, you know, my my definition of healing is that you operate from a place of deep self-awareness rather than classic conditioning. And a lot of people, they learn how to communicate um, early in life. And this becomes part of their, you know, their communication template. And communication deviance, you know, it can happen in many different forms. It usually is around how a person rupture and repairs in the context of relationships. Some people will become very critical, very aggressive, accusatory, um, they're inflaming others around them and eroding their confidence and self-esteem. Other people can hold a lot of contempt and grudges and name-calling and condescension. Um, again, kind of breaking down the safety in those relationships. Other people can become very defensive. They get constructive feedback about their behavior, their performance, and they immediately shut it down and become outwardly very blaming or evading responsibility and, you know, not taking ownership and then stonewalling, you know, shutting down, avoiding, tuning a person out. And a healthy relationship is not one that doesn't have ruptures. It's that the rupture repair cycle is as as quick and as smooth as possible. And under the playbook of um, communication deviance, there's a whole avenue of different behaviors and, and different methods that are often used to manipulate and control. And I'll share just a few of them with you because it can often be interesting for people because they get to kind of put words to an experience that they've lived through. So one would be triangulation. And triangulation is where the relationship is too weak for you to talk with a person directly. So you bring in a third party. And this can happen a lot in family systems where one person isn't talking to another. So then they have to bring in a third party to mediate rather than being able to sit down and have the conversation together. And, and this happens, you know, in the workplace too, where you're not able to effectively communicate with the right person. So you have to bring in a, a kind of a third proctor. Um, it can sometimes be the appropriate thing to do. And sometimes it can be incredibly stressful for everyone involved. Um, the other would be double bind messaging, where you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. You feel very trapped. Uh, that feeling of walking on eggshells. Loyalty binds where there's alliances and conflicts that have emerged in a dysfunctional system. And uh, you feel really forced to take sides and um, it restricts the full and direct communication. And, and it kind of creates secrecy, shame and, and silence. Uh, and that can be very challenging. Uh, coercion is where you, you just feel very micromanaged and controlled and, and you don't feel like you have yourself or you have a voice. And pathological accommodation is an interesting one. It's it's where you bend and mend to the will of others so much that you're so accommodating it's a problem. And over time, with no voice and no boundaries and, and no real ability to manage expectations, you, you feel completely burned out and, and demoralized. And then the one that everyone knows is reality shifting, um, which is colloquially known as gaslighting, coming from from the 1938 
British play Gaslight. And it's where you deny a person's perception of reality. So they're very clearly kind of stating the facts and you're in denial and you're creating another version of reality and you're not hearing them. So these these relational situations are very difficult. And you always have to look at them in the context of, is it a pattern of behavior? What's the intention? And is the person accountable or willing to make changes? And communication deviance is challenging because people are often very in denial about it. But in a workplace, the clue is that people will vote around their with their feet or there's a pervasive uh, situation where people feel unsafe or silent or accommodating and you're losing talent or people just don't feel comfortable enough to take a seat at the table and lean in. Amazing. You say, I help my patients live life more fully. And that is because you're helping your patients communicate better or simply deflecting, if you will, what is causing the initial problem? Well, living life fully, first off, you know, feeling safe and grounded in your own body and developing a more harmonious relationship with yourself that's based off of self-awareness rather than classic conditioning. And then, you know, communication would be the third one. And and I think that therapy, when it goes well, it's a bit like working out um, where first you notice the changes on the inside, you know, your energy, your focus, then you notice them on the outside and then the world starts to notice. And it's a kind of slow ripple effect of change. And I, I really feel that for everyone, it begins from within the relationship they have with themselves, their thoughts, their perceptions, their beliefs. Um, and then this trickles outwards into their relationships, their choices, and the life that they're designing for themselves. So you have one party who is going to get mad, for example, and say, I told you not to do that, and get out a pistol and shoot the other person dead and spend the entire rest of their life in a six by eight cell. And they'll never see freedom again because of that choice. Whereas the other one would say, hey, listen, you're not understanding. Let's examine what's happening here and let's work something out because we can do this better. This is not right. We can be more efficient, et cetera, et cetera. They correct the problem. They remain friends or lovers or relatives in good stead and they move forward. But it all depends on how you look at yourself and how you look at others. Or do you feel that when the illness has reached a certain level, it's rather difficult to cure? Have you ever found that happen where you have a patient and you basically throw your hands up in the air and say, I don't know what to do with him and her? Well, you know, your first example of people that manage conflict by murdering people, um, a lot of criminals live with the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. Um, in the criminal system, you know, that would be the most pervasive diagnosis. And in that, a person, you know, derives a sense of pleasure from harming others Um they break the law repeatedly. They disregard the safety of themselves and others. There's issues with substance abuse. There's no guilt. There's no remorse. And there's no accountability. And uh, a lot of these individuals, they end up in the prison system and they don't find their way into therapy unless it's under duress. They have a marked pattern of exploiting, manipulating and violating the rights of others without any concern, regret 
or remorse, it would be very hard to work with a person with antisocial personality disorder. Um, but in my personal practice, I have encountered few people with this diagnosis because it's rare, you know, and, and, and unfortunately, you know, at a young age, a lot of these people find themselves in the prison system. And I feel that when a person shows up uh, accountable and ready to work on themselves, there there is always hope for change. You know, if a person is showing up willing, courageous uh, to come to voice, to explore the past, to see how it informs their present, there's always hope. You know, the case example that you brought up about people that murder individuals as a way of resolving conflict. Um, unfortunately, you know, they they are probably living with antisocial personality disorder and that's a very difficult diagnosis to treat. Right. Then they watch John Wayne on TV and these old time Western movies and it makes them worse, you know? Yeah, I, I think that um, outward glamorizing violence in media or social media gives people a permission. But I feel like that's changing. I feel like the whole landscape has been changing where it has been role models more to to go to therapy to work on yourself to communicate with your words and not your aggression um, I feel like the collective consciousness is is changing and evolving for the better are any of your clients court prescribed court ordered earlier in my career I had involuntary clients but I don't presently work with forensic evaluations. Back in the old days, when they were assigned, did you have the system players who weren't telling you the truth? They were telling you what they thought you wanted to hear. Well, you know, most um, most people that um, are subject to a forensic evaluation, they're not ready to take accountability for their actions or empathize with the people that they've hurt or acknowledge a need for change. So there's a lot of dismissive avoidant behaviors and deflecting, that's for sure. Uh, that's very common. Wow. I'll tell you what, doctor, you were kind enough to set aside this hour to be with us. I'm not going to let you get out of here today until you tell the people out there listening, ma'am, are they allowed to get in contact with you or do you have to be only in the state of New York before you can help them? Uh, can you describe how a normal person in any of the 50 states, if they so desire, can get a hold of Dr. Jolene O'Shea Brown? Yeah, um, so I actually give a lot of education online around complex trauma, healing, um, instilling a sense of safety in your relationship with yourself and others. So they can follow on LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Dr. Jillian O'Shea Brown, or they can follow on Twitter. It's Dr. O'Shea Brown. And I will be releasing a second book early next year. And I'm turning my NYU course into an online course um, educating people about corporate wellness, but also complex trauma. There will be different courses according to your needs. So if you follow me on any of those platforms, I'll have a lot of free resources and a lot of literature that will help to just expand your practice wisdom and your healing journey. I'll tell you what, doctor, excuse me. I want to apologize for not being a medical student, if you will. My questions may have seemed elementary, but I'm just asking them as somebody who has seen damage caused by what I thought might have been PTSD. 
but I've learned a lot. I did not realize that there was a difference between PTSD and complex PTSD. You've educated me right there. Excuse my questions, but I hope we have imparted some wisdom to some of the people out there that are trying to live a little better life. And by consulting a professional, if they need the help, I think that's a great thing. Well, I I actually loved your questions, and I think you're really helping to demystify trauma and complex trauma for people. And you're probably asking the questions that are on a lot of people's minds. So you're facilitating really great space for learning. And the only silly question is the one you don't ask. So, uh, you know, I, I think that you, you've asked some really illuminating questions, and I'm sure that your listeners will feel really represented. Dr. Jeline O'Shea Brown, ladies and gentlemen, is coming to us today as our guest from New York City. She is a psychotherapist. She is a complex trauma specialist. She is an adjunct professor at New York University and author of her current book, Healing Complex Post-Traumatic stress disorder. You've seen her in Vogue, Marie Claire, Huffington Post, Wondermind, and her website, JeleneOsheaBrownPsychotherapy.com. This is Rick Flynn speaking. It's been fun, but I've got to run. On behalf of myself and our distinguished guest, Dr. Jeline O'Shea Brown, thank you everybody for joining us, and we'll see you next Wednesday with a brand new show. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Dr. Brown. I've loved every second of it. And please come on back with me again when you have time, okay? Okay, absolutely. Thank you, Rick, for having me. I really enjoyed being on your show. The preceding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantal Marie speaking.